beyond belief, fact or fiction. Hosted by Jonathan Frakes. Horror. From classic creatures such as Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman, to the masked murders of the 1980s. Millions flock to the big screen in search of fear-injected fiction. But what happens when the terror is real? In tonight's episode, can you decipher which deeds are truth and which are the twisted tales of monsters, of madness, and of magic? Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper, here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> I'm your host, Justin, joined by my co-host, Henry. This evening, we're joined by a very special guest, actor, director, producer, our commander and yours, Mr. Jonathan Frakes. Jonathan, how the hell are you doing? Gentlemen, a pleasure. Nice to see you. We're here. Thank you so much for being here. Let's just keep it simple. Let's start at the beginning. Take us back in time. When you were a kid, what sort of films, fiction, music, and stuff were you consuming to get those creative juices flowing? One of my fondest memories of my childhood in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, being taken to the Boyd Theater by my wonderful late great father, James R. Frakes, who was a great fan of jazz movies. He was an English professor and a book critic. We went to see Robert Altman's MASH, probably 1970. We sat through it the first time. The usher at the Boyd Theater came down and told us we needed to shut up because we were being too rowdy. <laughs> first of all, that made me very happy that my father and I had been shushed by the usher. Then we decided we liked the movie so much we'd stay for the second showing. So we sat through Altman's MASH twice. This, I guess I was a senior in high school, and it made me so happy. He used to make me watch The Searchers about once a year, John Ford. Mm. We watched Wizard of Oz every Christmas. He was a very big Hitchcock fan. So I was very I was very much influenced by my father. And then when I started going to movies on my own, 2001 was huge, and Jaws, from which I steal whenever possible. Mm -hmm. So I was a kid in the 70s when that whole all those wonderful directors were starting coppola and corsese and i, I wasn't much of a sci-fi guy to be perfectly honest so i came to star wars later i was much more in the godfather goodfellas kind of a genre than i was anything to do with outer space or or science fiction now did you see the exorcist back then as well oh god yes <laughs> Jason, kind of what's the guy's name who wrote that play and started. Ah, I met him. He was a friend of my sister-in-law's, and I was I was like a fanboy with him. I was so yeah, that was spectacular. That's the same era. Yes, sir. I see that your father is also was a literary professor, so I'm assuming the library at home was vast and varied. Did you read a lot? Library at home was vast and varied, and and somewhat intimidating to be honest. <laughs> I told this story on Gates's podcast when I was young, high school young. I said to my dad, my dad taught Hemingway and Faulkner and James Joyce and Henry James. I said to him at one point, I think I'm ready for, uh, I'd like to read uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. And he said, you can't, you can't handle Ulysses. <laughs> started and I read about, you know, the first paragraph, which was completely impossible for me to follow. So I closed the book and I said, you're right. Fast forward to a few years ago after my father died, I got I was lucky to get his um, a lot of his teaching copies of his books. He used to reread the books before he taught them every year, every semester, whatever it happened to be. So as one will, 
I was sitting in my little library here in Maine, and I took down Ulysses. And I looked up to the heavens, and I thought, oh, I'll connect with my dad. This will be great. It's me and my dad, and he's dead, and I'm alive. And I got, you know, and I'm now, you know, I was probably 60 or whatever. Take Ulysses down. It's got his little annotated things in the columns. It was great. It was, it was wonderful. I thought it was going to be great. Open Ulysses, read the same paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I still can't handle Ulysses. <laughs> The book, and that was it. I think a lot of people share that experience with Ulysses the first yes, time they I pick it up. <laughs> portrait of an artist as a young man we can handle. <laughs> Do you have a eureka moment you can point to to where you decided to pursue the arts? Did you start doing the theater at a young age? Yeah, here's how that worked out. I went to Penn State about a week after graduating from high school because I had wanted to have a gap year. And my dad, who was a professor at Lehigh, thought it was a great idea. My mother, on the other hand, said, no, no, this isn't gonna work. So I didn't apply to any schools, and then he pulled, because he had taught at Penn State, and gone to Penn State, and they said, well, we can get him in late, but he's gotta start in the summer if he wanted to go to the main campus, and it became this. So I got out of high school, and I'm 17, and I ended up going to Penn State. At that point, I wanted to be a psychiatrist, I thought. Going in as a psych major. And on the Penn State campus, there was a company, an acting company from New York, called New American Theater Company, something innocuous like that. And I went to the theater department and signed up to be an usher so I could get into the place for free. Because I like, I mean, I like the theater. I was in place in high school and I thought it'd be a, you know, good place to meet women. That's right. <laughs> so on the board, to be an usher at the production of Arthur Coppett's The Indians, which was a wonderful play, again, from the 70s. And the director, whose name was Richard Edelman, who became one of my mentors, came down the hall at the same time and said, hey, you're, you're a tall guy. How would you like to be in this production? I said, well, that, that sounds great. <laughs> he said, all you have to do is sit on the stage. You know, I'll give you a drum and you're going to play, you know, you'll play the drum in this scene. I said, that would be great. So I started coming to rehearsals. And this company, wonderful actors from the Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., and Actors Theater Louisville and the Guthrie and all these great regional theaters from around the country had come to Penn State because it's in the middle of nowhere between these seven mountains. This is a glorious place, State College, Pennsylvania, where I happened to have been born as well. So I'm in rehearsal for this for Arthur Coppett's The Indians. I'm 17 or about to be 18 and I'm surrounded by New York theater actors who get to work for rehearsal about 10 30 or 11 rehearse the play for the afternoon <laughs> get a little bite to eat then go perform the play that they're performing that night 7 30 curtain eight o'clock show 10 o'clock the show comes down they get out of the bar whatever happens happens they come back <laughs> go to sleep they get up at 10 30 they go to rehearsal for one play they go perform it this is a this is a kind of a cool lifestyle <laughs> <laughs> i'll say <laughs> so i became a theater major and got the most useless degree one can ever have which is a bfa in theater arts with a focus in acting <laughs> there's, there's the uh, eureka moment right there so is uh, uh working on stage something you enjoyed when's the last time you uh stepped up there Oof, it's been a long time. It could have been when Patrick directed, we did a production of Tom Stoppard's Every Good Boy Deserves Favor. Music was by Andre Previn. Very rarely produced because it has to be produced with a symphony orchestra. Patrick directed it and was in it. Brent and I played these two Russian prisoners who were in, I was in the cello section and he was in the violin section, prison cells. And Gates was in it as a doctor. Colomini was in it. The premise of the play is that these two men are insane or not insane, but Brent's character believed that he was the triangle player in the percussion section of the symphony orchestra. So as you can see, it's, it, the set was very specific and very rarely done. But because Star Trek was hot shit at that time, we were able to perform it. And people who would never have gone to see a Stoppard play, we did it at the Chicago Symphony and the Atlanta Symphony. I don't know where else? We did three or four cities. And it was great. 
but it was, uh, I think it might have been the last play I did, sadly. So that would have been the early 90s, you would say? Yeah, that would have been the early 90s, exactly. Are I'm you looking... an actor as well? No, I'm not. I'm not an actor. Uh, I write, but that's as close as I will ever want to get to it, probably. <laughs> and where are you from? I hear a wonderful accent. What is that accent? We are both from South Carolina. Such a beautiful, beautiful accent. Thank you. That's You're that's the first time I've, my voice has been called beautiful. Well, it's so mellifluous, and it's so almost British. You know, that's especially the South Carolina accent. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful southern accent. Some not so much. Agreed. I think you're thinking of Kentucky, maybe. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> so does your uh, personal approach differ when you're on stage as opposed to on screen? I will say that I'm not, I don't really have a good answer, but I will it did spur a, a, an answer, which is that now in my job as director, which I'm, I feel that I've sort of found the thing that I'm kind of best at. I was, I was okay as an actor. But I think I'm better as a director. But I use a lot of what I work, learned from this Richard Edel, Edelman, who I, who I referenced earlier. And I have two other professors there. One was named Archie Smith, and one was named Manuel Duque. And that triangle, one of them was from the Neighborhood Playhouse, one of them came from the Actors Studio, and one of them taught sort of Herbert Burgos. So there were three different acting styles being taught, Stanislavski. So the influence of these three professors sort of gave me the groundwork for how I approach things as an actor, which is breaking things down to beats, action verbs, clear intention of what you want from the scene, of what the character wants, all those classic acting things, which I now, when I prepare for shooting anything, I do, I break up the, the, I break the beats down. I write the action and the column next so that I, you know, so that if an actor hasn't made it a choice, I could suggest a choice for them. But I find that having break, having an acting background has been very helpful to me as a director. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you have a nickname, One Take Freaks. Would you say that that your uh, two takes is two takes? Yeah, and oddly enough, I mean, I know that implies that I work fast, but I'll give you the background on that story. <laughs> I mean, you got me on a roll. I'm glad I have my iced coffee. <laughs> Keep it rolling. Two takes freaks comes from when I was blessed with that job to direct First Contact for Paramount Pictures. My first movie, an incredible script. A great opportunity from a guy who had just directed, you know, a dozen or so episodes of television. And it was with all my friends, obviously. But, you know, it was a bigger budget and a bigger, it was a bigger deal. But it was still making a show. I was, uh, I, I did a shot, I think, with Patrick. And take one I thought was spectacular. So I said, okay, let's print that and move on. Move on to another size and move on, whatever we were moving on to. And Marty Hornstein, who was the producer, what's called the line producer for Paramount Pictures, he came and sort of whispered in my ear, said, Fricks, you got to go again. I said, well, no, that was that was great. I, I printed it. He said, no, no, you have to print two takes when you work for the studio. So that's where two takes come from, not from working fast. Not that I don't work fast, but it has, uh, you got the true story here on your, what do you call your podcast? It's Monsters, Madness, and Magic. I think that encompasses most of what we're interested in, you know. Monsters, Madness, and Magic got this true scoop. On two takes, freaks. There you go. Heard it here first. So your bio says that in the early 70s that you worked for Marvel Comics. How did that come about? And what were you wearing? My old dear friend, Charlie Davis, had some contact with Marvel Comics. He became the first guy to put on the Spider-Man suit and go out and open up comic book stores and all that kind of back. And then they said, well, we need somebody to play Captain America. So Spider Charlie says, why don't you come down and meet them? So they said, okay, you can go be. Spider from Spider-Man. 
you go to the Captain America. We'll send you downtown to get fit for a uniform, and we'll give you this garbage can lid with the star on it, and we'll get you some big red leather boots. And so fast forward a month or so, I have a horrible spandex space suit. It looks like it's a Captain America suit. I got the cowl, and I got the little grippered wings on your head, and a uh, garbage can lid that's now beautifully like a, like a, actually like one of those sleds, those round circular sleds. And we would be sent out to Omaha, Nebraska, let's say. We'd have to sign up the costume, 575 Madison Avenue, upstairs, past Stan Lee's office, go and sign up. I get the Captain America outfit. He'd get the Spider-Man outfit. They'd send us out to LaGuardia. They'd give us two coach tickets to go to Omaha and, a, and an itinerary. And we'd open up, you know, you go into the 7-Eleven at 11-10, and then you're going to go down to this comic book store, and that's going to be at 12-15. Then, you know, we had this routine where we just, you know, wrote in and signed comic books, Marvel comic books, and gave them to sign Captain A, Captain A. And I, you know, it was, it was ridiculous. You no, know, I got, there's only one real great perk came from it when we were invited to Jane Rosalind and Jimmy Carter, who was the president of, that's how long ago this was, <laughs> and their daughter Amy Carter had an environmental awareness lawn party at the White House, to which we were invited with Stan Lee and the Hulk and others. So they had to do a background check, and we got, but we did end up at this, which is probably the pictures that you found where you did your research. Right, right. That was the, that was the high point. That and also Blood, Sweat, and Tears came to one of our conventions for some reason, there was a comic book convention with that. He said, would you guys, if we paid you, would you come down to our concert tonight? They were playing at the Metropolitan Opera. We said, sure we would. So they, because we were making 50 bucks a day and they were going to pay us like 100 bucks to go to this thing. So we went down there and then they invited us to the after party, which was in Lincoln Center. And that's when I realized that the best gig was of the two was Captain America because I had a, a cowl, as you probably would think. But Spider-Man had the full head on mm. string over his mouth. So <laughs> I could have the martinis. And he put <laughs> It's interesting when you, when you think about conventions too. They seem like a like a modern conception, but obviously you guys were doing stuff like that back in the seventies. How active was it? There were more dealers' rooms than there were. I actually I don't know. I don't know. I, I only remember doing that with Captain America a couple of times. Like when I started in the convention circuit in eighty seven, they were they were not what they are now. They were right. they were growing. I think. But yeah. By the nineties, there was a convention every weekend. Some. Are you a convention guy? Are you too? Eh, every once in a while, if they're kind of close enough and someone's there that's kind of piques my interest, I'll go. But sometimes, you know, I'm not an avid goer, I'd say. You landed your first Broadway role at the same time that you landed the gig on The Doctors. So in hindsight, breaking into both of those two mediums at the same time, was that a crazy period in your life? It was. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I had a, <laughs> I had a job on The Doctors as this uh, kind of troubled Vietnam vet, child beater, horrible, horrible character. And I had done a, a summer stock production of Shenandoah, which was a big Broadway musical that John Cullum started. I had done a, a summer stock production, Wolf Trap Theater in Virginia. And when I got back to New York, Shenandoah was obviously had been running for a year, two years, whatever. They, they asked me to replace the guy whose part I played because he was going to leave the show. And I, of course, said yes. So I had, I had a, a job on television during the day, a soap job. I had a job with a scene and then the chorus of a Broadway show at night. And I had an apartment in the village for 181 bucks a week. I thought, I, this is it. And it, and it could have well been it, but it hadn't been for Star Trek. But it was, um, 
it was a fabulous time. I can imagine. Oh, you just mentioned it, so we got to go there. Obviously, all of our worlds change in 87 when Star Trek The Next Generation comes around. So take us through it. Was it another typical audition that just you landed the role of a lifetime, or was it? I was. I auditioned. I auditioned seven times over six weeks. I first went in to see Junie Lowry, who was the casting director. And then she brought me back to meet Rick Herman, who was with the studio, Bob Justman, who had been on the original series of with, with Gene. I was brought back again to meet with Gene. And then because the show was being made for um, 237 separate television stations, Paramount sort of owned it. It wasn't like a network show. Right. There were people at Paramount that had to sign off on the cast. So after the three or four auditions I had, I then had to go see these executives and go to their offices and, and audition. And by this point, it was down to um, probably, I don't know, at least a couple of us. William, Billy Campbell, William Campbell, who you probably know, is a wonderful actor who's actually on the show. It was the Rocketeer, and he was uh, the outrageous O'Connor on our show. I would go to Gene Roddenberry's office an hour before the audition, and Corey Allen, who directed our pilot, and Gene would coach me through the scenes. And by this point, I had done the scenes a lot. And I was familiar and more and more nervous each time. I also wore the same, what I thought was my sci-fi shirt. <laughs> I've been lucky and I had this kind of had a little metallic shit in it. It was kind of hazy. <laughs> it must be the shirt that's really doing working for me. And I didn't wash it. So the shirt by the, you know, the seventh audition was, you know, <laughs> and stiff. So it was like my acting. <laughs> you still have the shirt? I still have the shirt. It's in the <laughs> and uh, eventually... Gene Roddenberry called me at my place I was living and uh, said, congratulations. I went outside to drive back to Jeannie's house where I was, there was no see Jeannie, I think. And my car, where my car had been parked was a pile of glass. And my car had been stolen the night that I got the job. Oh my God. <laughs> well, sorry about, did you ever, did they find out the guy who stole Commander Riker's car? <laughs> I never, I never heard about it. <laughs> I did. My insurance covered it, but it was a it was an interesting balance of uh, yin and yang. I'll see. We know the next generation was extremely successful and launched several other parts of the franchise. I mean, early on though, TNG it was kind of shaky though, wasn't it? I know there was a lot of worry. I know that Gene Roddenberry. There was a lot of clashing between him and um, Paramount. And early on, did you did you feel that the series was was going to be as successful as it was, or did was it kind of were you kind of constantly on your toes, a little worried that things might might not pan out for the series? Well, I I think that um, they were skeptical from the very beginning because we had a three tiered contract. We had a, t a contract for the pilot. I think then if the pilot went well, we were picked up for like the first half of the season, and then if that went well, that we picked up for the first season with an option for the for the rest. So. Just starting out, you could tell they were they were big careful. And also, when you watch the first season, there were not a lot of uh, home runs in that. And we were also very, very green in terms of our the relationships between the characters and our comfort level. And there was a lot about the first season that was not great, like with most shows starting out. Mm -hmm. But we hit our stride around the third season, I think, between the third and the fourth season, somewhere around the board when they showed up. And the audience, also the audience, as you know, was very skeptical bordering on hostile. I've told many times the story of uh, my first convention, Syracuse, New York, and I knew nothing about the world that I had gotten into. I didn't, I was just beginning to get that it was a big deal because I told you I was not much of a sci-fi fan. I was just seeing glimmers of what it, what it could be. And the audience was skeptical. The show had barely started to air, as I recall. I was waiting in the dealer's room to go on stage, which I didn't 
quite sure what that meant to be, and it was for Q and A. And so they were selling it with little galoob action figures. The first season action figures, and they had the you know Jordy LaForge for thirty five bucks, and they had like a limited die lot data that had been misprinted, and they were like fifty bucks. And Captain Picard is sixty seventy bucks, and there's a sign at the end of the table that says, "Buy any action figure, get Riker free." <laughs> You've heard that story before. I have not heard that story before. <laughs> Never heard that one. That's something. <laughs> that is something. <laughs> of course, Star Trek was already a cultural phenomenon before you guys with the success of the original. Is that a pressure that you felt from episode one on? I think it grew on us. Patrick and I were not really aware. Dorn was a big fan. He knew about it. Will Wheaton really was aware of it. Marina, not so much. I, I think we were naive or <clears throat> cocky or uninformed we understood that the franchise was a, a phenomenon but I, I i didn't understand completely how loyal they were to spock and kirk and bones until that convention until we started to try to to break in and then it was it was in a very interesting time to learn our place in the pecking order and the same thing happened i don't know about i don't know so much about deep space and, and voyager but i i was around the beginning of discovery with those actors and there was a the, uh, they were really quizzing me about what it was going to be like because the audience was the same way, the same way that they were with JJ's movies. They're very skeptical and very uh, careful. And that's the way the audiences are with all the new show. And I remember going through this with the cast of, of Discovery trying to explain that hopefully, you know, they're, they're going to come around because you guys are wonderful and the shows are wonderful and that it's room in their hearts, but they, they, they are loyal to certain captains and certain, right. it's part of the, it's part of the mystique of the uh, genre or part of, the, of that particular of what Star Trek represents to people. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine. A treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you just can't please everyone. Boy, is that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> As you can, you went through and you've been, uh, you've kind of had an appearance and directed in some ways uh, in various different, you know, you, I know you were in Deep Space Nine. You directed several episodes of TNG. You were in Enterprise. Do you think, having throughout the years played the character of Riker and being involved as a director, do you feel that all of that is what helped you along with the script to make the first, well, I should say the second next generation movie as successful as it was? Because I know as a, as a Trekkie first contact to me was like the pinnacle of Star Trek films from, for at least my generation of Trekkies. I, I think that the script for First Contact, whether it had been a Star Trek movie or not, it had it all. It was like a horror movie. It had comedy. It had 
great, great story, great stakes. And then we added to it, I mean, our cast was wonderful. We added Alfred Woodard, who was spectacular, and a Jimmy Cromwell, who just come off of Babe. And then the magic of, of Alice Krieger, there's magic, I dropped that in for you, because it's your magic, <laughs> of, of Alice Krieger as the uh, Borg Queen. Just was, I've said often, it was, it was sort of mine to screw up, it was so good. It, had, it was all there, it was all on the page. There was a lot of goodwill around it, because we were excited, because our show had been canceled, and we'd made Generations, which was kind of okay. Never really became the phenomenon that I think this the studio wanted to cancel the show and cash in on, on a crossover show between the two casts, which I don't think went as well as they had hoped. So this was our first one alone. We hadn't been together for a couple of years. It was every all the all the stars aligned. I still look back on it with great great fondness. Henry just uh, mentioned it. Uh, Star Trek is where you got to test some of your directing chops. Is that something you'd always wanted to pursue and you just never had the opportunity? I, I realized that while I was working on the show that there was a lot of downtime as an actor. And someone either told me or I just figured it out on my own that this was a great time to take advantage of being at Paramount Pictures, being on a show. So I asked Berman if I could uh, shadow the, they call it shadow, shadow the older directors. And he said, sure, you can, but you know, I, don't, I can't guarantee it. So for like two and a half years, I shadowed everyone. Then I got to go to the editing room where I really was naive about what was needed by them. And I then eventually was invited into the pre-production stuff and the visual effects meetings and then the post-production symphony orchestras and McCarthy and the orchestra would play and I go to the ADR session. So I was, because I was at the studio, because I was on the show and because I was eager, I got an incredible hands-on training. Mm. So by the time I did finally get an episode to direct, I felt uh, somewhat prepared. I knew, I knew the crew, obviously, and I was lucky enough to get a script that featured data, and generally the data stories were really... So it was, again, I was uh, triply blessed. You started with TV. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your first film that you directed was Clockstoppers. No, I started with First Content Insurrection. Then I did Clockstoppers. Then I went to movie jail with Thunderbirds, and I haven't done a movie since. Gotcha. So, what were some of the major challenges jumping from directing just a TV episode to a you know a feature that you had to adjust to? Well, on Star Trek, going from a TV show to a feature, the difference was as simple as you have more time and you have more money, so you can think bigger. All the budgets are bigger. All the my favorite example was that when we were scouting locations for where the little village was in First Contact, where, where Cromwell and Alfred were, and they hung out with the, the, he had the uh, jukebox. And remember that place, the night, the night they bombed that, or bombed that village. I said, I remember we're, we're scouting, I said to, the, to Terry Frizee, who the special effects coordinator, the other guys that blow shit up. We would we put some like M16s and blow up the garden and blow up the vegetables. It breaks in a movie. We're going to blow up all these fucking buildings. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. So that's when the light bulb went on. Like, this is really, this is going to be fun. You get to blow up a lot more stuff on the feature. Yes, that's, really, <laughs> that's kind of the short version of it. <laughs> You know, we have to mention, Jonathan, we have to mention Gargoyles because you voice one of the major villains that we all grew up with. Uh, a lot of voice talent on that show in general. So what are your memories of the recording sessions? Were you guys together? It's kind of yeah, old school. That was one of the few voiceover jobs where we actually were together. We were invited in generally on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning. They had big boxes of donuts. People came in their, you know, their sweats. And it was, it was a great gig. Absolutely fabulous gig. Uh, Marina and I were cast as sort of regulars with, I mean, Ed Asner was in the show, I remember, and there were, there were five or six of us that were regulars. And then Jamie, who was the, uh, I guess, the casting director for Disney, 
was a Disney production. Mm -hmm. They saw that there was some play in terms of cross publicity, I think, with certainly with Marina and me. Oh, Keith David was great in it. There was Sherry. Anyway, we had a ball. But I think what happened with the propensity of Star Trek acting talent was that Disney realized that, oh my God, we can cash in. And so Brent was on it, and Kate Mulgrew was on it, Worf, Michael Dorn was on it. And then you look at some of the guest stars, were guest stars from our show. So it was, it was, it became a kind of a Star Trek road. Yeah. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I think I heard that there was a revival perhaps coming up soon. Have you heard anything I've about heard that? that for, I've heard that for many, many years. Again, I've, I've heard the same rumors you have, and I've heard it for a lot of years, and I don't know. I know Greg Weissman would love it, and I know we don't work. Yes, we would. <laughs> so I got to ask you, because I'm seeing here that you played trombone on a fish album. How the hell did that come about? <laughs> You're going right through the good stuff. <laughs> I used to live on Lookout Mountain, which is up in the, off of Laurel Canyon. My next door neighbor was a record producer named Paul Fox and dear friend. He produced, uh, used to produce R.E.M. and York and Jacob Dylan and uh, 10,000 Maniacs. And he produced a fish album called Hoist. And they would come up to rehearse. In front of my property was a little garage and above that was a room like a rehearsal studio that Paul's musicians rehearsed in. And I had a mailbox in front of my house that had been hit by a lot of cars. It was a, it was a black and white dotted kind of cow. You've seen it. It's like the trout mail, or the, it's the uh, large mouth bass mailbox, but of a cow. Yeah, yeah. That's the vibe. And it was dented and beat up and kind of crooked. And So these guys from Fish were Trekkies, a couple of them. They asked me to go to the studio to play trombone on their album. This is... <laughs> So I go out to the studio somewhere down deep in the valley. I get there, they give me the charts, I horn out and try and, and I'm telling you, and I, I'm not, I was not that good a trauma player, but I was okay. But these charts were way beyond my chops. <laughs> the range was way, 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 way up high. The speed, and I mean, it was really for a proper professional trombone player. <laughs> so I did a couple of attempts and a couple of attempts and a couple of attempts. And that became clear to all of us that this is, you know, beyond my uh, level of ability. So they said, thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Did your takes make it on the album? Yes. Then they, they, um, they hired the trombone player from Tower of Power to play on that cut. But they took the outtakes of these attempts. They put them in a little, I think, 29-second cut on hoist called Riker's Mailbox. That's great. All Fox, my dear friend, when the record went gold, he gave me a gold record. So I have gold record on my wall so is that as far as the musical pursuits go have you ever thought about singing on a christmas album or something <laughs> no i sing too much anyway my i sing on the set drives people crazy <laughs> singing around the house drives my kids crazy i'd like to get my lip back play some more trombone but it's uh keep talking about it and not doing it. I've been kind of holding off on this one, Mr. Freights, because Beyond Belief is a childhood staple for me. Oh, really? Uh, yes. A, uh, a German production company just hired me to go and do kind of a Beyond Belief. In Germany, for some reason, you know it's huge in Germany? you know anything about this? Yeah, I did see something that there was something going on in Germany and that it was oh, a lot... Oh. X Factor there, and and it's hugely popular for some strange reason. German production company, the writer and, and director came over, and we had a little a crew, and they built that kind of that set with the mood lighting and the mm -hmm. desk and all the artifacts, all that shit, and and we did like one, two, like four little episodes with the ins and outs and the and the attempts at those. We used to call them the Edelmans, the, those horrible puns at the end of the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gary Edelman wrote those, and Al Schwartz directed the show. And I was, um, so I had a ball. I revisited this like a week ago, two weeks ago. Wow. 
I had the same black suit. They said, do you have a black suit? I said, I got my suit from Beyond Belief. <laughs> I don't have a black beard anymore, but I have the same black suit. People were asking me about it. Actually, I was at a virtual convention this week in GalaxyCon, and there were a bunch of people asking about Beyond Belief. And I said, one of the things about the job that I thought worked very well, I mean, I don't understand the phenomenon. I love the gig. Was that Edelman and Schwartz, who were the producers for Dick Clark Productions, made a decision never to tell me which were fact and which were fiction when I was reading the uh, the payoffs at the end of the show, the wrap right. that had those wonderful puns in them, or had the this one's true, but not this time. Remember all that business? And they I remember. <laughs> made a great meme of it last year, which I was very proud of, <laughs> including the slow motion one where I sound like I'm. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you've seen the Drunk Frakes videos. Spectacular. <laughs> Favorite meme that I've been part of. Those are great. I watch those more than I care to admit. Oh, <laughs> it makes my whole family laugh. <laughs> so the, the, the popularity of that show is, is um, surprising to me. So uh, James, uh, James Brolin hosted the first season. How did you come aboard? I don't know. I don't know if he decided that uh, he didn't want to leave Malibu, Barbara, or if they decided to change hosts for some other reason. But I'm certainly grateful that he moved on to another. It turned out to be, I went to, I used to go to Vancouver to shoot it. I think it was during, was it during Star Trek in the 90s? I think that was 97, oh, 97. So after Star Trek. Anyway, I could be wrong. Two or three episodes in a day. of the Wow. Movie. And, and they made the shows were made non-union. Not the shows, but those little reenactments. Mm -hmm. Stories on the show. They were shot very low budget, non-union. A lot of people got their start actually making Beyond Belief. Yeah, you can make you can uh, catch a few faces in there that you recognize if you yeah, watch right. enough of them. And for people, me and Henry's age, you're an iconic host. You're, you're not giving yourself enough credit here. So it was very popular with families because people could sit down and guess together at the end. It's like watching yeah. Jeffrey without having to be that smart. <laughs> right. Did you study uh, any other host? Did you did you watch any Twilight Zone kind of Rod Serling? Yeah, Twilight, Twilight Zone was big in our house. That's a good mm -hmm. reference. I was a big Rod uh, Serling fan. Very big. I, I brought a little bit of that, but it was um, it was mostly Al Schwartz kind of gave you the tone he wanted, and it was driven by those wonderful puns at the end who just play them dry. That was my point, that they told me not, they never told me which was false and which was true, so that I wouldn't sway the audience, or, or it wouldn't influence my inflection, if you will. Right. That was pretty clever on their part. So with the German show that you just mentioned, those are new episodes. That are going, those are going to be premiering as new Beyond Belief episodes? What the concept is that he will take what we shot and try to sell it. That's really what he's Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, just a personal question here. Are there, were there any of the stories that stand out to you, ones that you couldn't believe were real? I never, I never saw the stories, to be perfectly honest. Oh, you never saw the, the no. dramatizations? Gotcha, gotcha. So to date, what is the best acting advice that you've received? Never judge your character. You know who told me that? Who? Pretty decent actor. Sir Ben Kingsley. Who was I'd listen. And <laughs> uh, that guy in Thunderbirds. Not to mention Sexy Beast and Gandhi. But it's a great piece of advice for an actor. because he, he played a lot of bad guys. Really convincing. Never judge your character. I got another good piece of acting advice from my one of those three guys, Archie Smith, who I referenced earlier, who won the triumvirate of mentors from Penn State. He said the two most important things about being an actor are to make sure that your shoes fit. Never marry an actress. <laughs> you know, so let me just say my sh my shoes fit fine. Did you marry an actress? I did indeed. 
<laughs> the rules are meant to be broken. So have you seen any good uh, movies during the lockdown? I've been on a binge TV thing. I just finished Ron Moore's new show, which I loved, which is called For All Mankind. I did two seasons of that. I'm in the middle of Mayor of Easttown. Uh, Hacks is my currently enjoying. Uh, huge Shit's Creek fan. Ted Lasso I enjoyed immensely. When I was in uh, quarantine before shooting Discovery during the pandemic, probably after Christmas, I went up there January, February, somewhere. And you have to sit in a hotel room for two weeks. So I was the only person on the planet who hadn't seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> so it, there was never a better opportunity and never a better way to kill the two-week quarantine. I watched it wall to wall. Thoughts? All eight seasons in two weeks, and it was great. Are you a Game of Thrones fan? Huge Game of Thrones fan. Um, but how do you feel about the ending? It got better and better when there were fewer and fewer stories to follow. I... I may, you know, you really can find some favorites and you're cheering for them and waiting for them to come. I don't think we'll ever see television like that again. Oh, it was spectacular. Agreed. Like when Game of Thrones was at the height of its popularity, it was yeah. it was rocking. Yeah. It was and, a cultural and, and, talking and point. The attitude the HBO had about it, that it was, uh, I mean, like, at least this is what I was told by different directors and people who worked on it, is that the budget and the time was determined by how long it took to make this as great as it did. They weren't given 10 days to do this. We said, you know, if it took this much time and we had to travel and they were, you know, as you know, they were in three different countries and with mm-hmm. the productions, it was just astounding. It was really fun to, to finally, and it's also part of our social, it's like Star Trek. Yeah, it is. Talking about Game of Thrones. So I felt, I was so naive and felt so out of it when people would reference Khaleesi and all the things that I now are part of our lexicon. <laughs> Uh, it was it was the best part of the quarantine for me. You know, for Game of Thrones, kind of Game of Thrones was for science fiction, fantasy, kind of sorta. How was uh, the Soprano was for the drama series? It it you know before what was before Sopranos in terms of kind of cerebral and gut wrenching dramas. I don't I don't think things like Breaking Bad would exist without Sopranos. And it seems that uh, Game of Thrones has kind of started a craze for uh, what Amazon's got Lord of the Rings coming up and. I think there's a Wheel of Time series, so that's kind of a kind of much probably in the same way that Star Trek kind of sparked all of its uh, copiers. Like, well, Babylon Five was Babylon Five and Farscape and all of those as well. Coming out, Firefly and Battles and uh, Battlestar and all those things. They were sort of coming out simultaneous with with the next gen. But science, science, it's like Western science fiction never really has gone out of favor. I don't think. No, it's it's always kind of under the top layer there, no matter what. I did go through all of Breaking Bad a couple of years ago after not having watched it when it was on TV, and I thought, oh, there's going to be a stinker in here somewhere. There's going to be a shitty script in here somewhere, and there never seemed to be. I thought that show really. That's one show I've missed out of the recent ones to come out. I've not watched it yet. Okay, dive into that one. You tell them. <laughs> Well, Jonathan, we're not going to keep you all evening here, but I do have a small favor to ask, if you don't mind. I have written a little brief for promotional purposes and for personal purposes, Beyond Belief style monologue to promote the show. If I could just text it into the chat, you could read it and see if you still can do the two takes freaks name here. Me and Henry will mute our mics and shut up so you can zone out here. Horror from classic creatures such as Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman to the masked murders of the 1980s. Millions flock to the big screen in search of fear-injected fiction. But what happens when the terror is real? In tonight's episode, can you decipher which deeds are truth and which 
are the twisted tales of monsters, of madness, and of magic. Bravo, sir. That was great. You just made a lot of people happy. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure, my friend. We'll uh, catch you down the road. Thanks, sir. Bye-bye. Take care. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, inviting all you fans of Monsters, Madness, and Magic to check out my podcast, Rants from the Black Lodge. What are we all about? Well, let me lay some inside baseball on you. The first of each month, myself and the Rant Army dissect some of cinema's greatest horror and cult films with in-depth retrospectives. Then on the 15th of each month, we present something a little more lighthearted with a fun watch-along commentary for some of cult films' more underappreciated offerings. Rants from the Black Lodge can be found on all major platforms, so hop on over to your app of choice and give us a sub. Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge, and for the love of Cthulhu, hop over and check us out on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. Oh yeah, and please continue to support all the great content by our friends at Monsters, Madness, and Magic.